You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I watched, you can stop blowing up my DMs now, I watched it. I'm not talking about the January 6th committee hearing last week, although I did watch that too. I was actually the first to tweet, hey, about the hot dude over the left shoulder of the former White House official giving testimony, and I was the first to call for someone to put gackety sacks over the video clip of Republican Senator Josh Hawley running from the mob he'd incited a few hours earlier. Holly had a raised fist for the mob before they broke through police lines and a full diaper after. No, I watched at the urging of my listeners who've been DMing me on Twitter and Instagram all last week. I watched the new Netflix reality show, How to Build a Sex Room. Melanie Rose, the host, the designer, was a high-end interior decorator, according to Melanie Rose, before she began designing sex rooms exclusively. High-end, swank, luxurious sex rooms. We get a glimpse of Rose's portfolio, her pre-sex room portfolio at the top of the show and kind of looked to me like most of her clients' pre-sex room were Russian mistresses. Now, I only watched one episode, the first episode, and I'm sorry to say I wasn't impressed. Rose designs a sex room for a straight married couple in Denver, Taylor and AJ, and during her conversations with them, it comes out that there's just really three things they want out of their sex room. The first thing they want is for their sex room to be a sexy secret, which is why they've already built a hidden door that leads to the space where their sex room is going to be. They don't want anyone to know about their sex room, anyone other than Rose and the 220 million people who subscribe to Netflix. And then there's what they want to do in their very, very top secret sex room, which is anal, some light bondage, but mostly anal. Taylor loves anal loves getting her ass fucked, and they've been experimenting with butt plugs, putting them in AJ. AJ likes them, which, along with the location of their sex room, may have been something AJ wanted to keep secret based on his reaction to Taylor blurting out that AJ likes butt plugs. All right, spoiler alert. If you're planning to watch the episode, I'm going to give away the sex room now. This is the big reveal. Rose sends AJ and Taylor away and creates for them an all-white sex room, a white leather couch with a white fake fur throw, white walls, white shag carpeting for a room where her clients basically just want to have anal. Now, I've been in a few sex rooms myself in a few dungeons, and you know what you typically don't see much of in sex rooms? White upholstery. Now, you don't need a mud room for anal. Anal isn't always messy. If you're good at it, it's rarely messy. No Santorum. But accidents do occasionally happen. A white leather couch with a white fake fur throw in a room with white walls and white shag carpeting? God will not be mocked. And dry cleaners are not magicians. How to Build a Sex Room has the same bright tone of all the other home makeover shows, but instead of going to a high-end restaurant for a cooking class, like a couple having their kitchen remodeled on an HGTV show might do, the couple on How to Build a Sex Room 
goes to a kink education class where they watch a flogging demo in a public dungeon. The whole thing is cringe. And I couldn't help but thinking watching it that it's just another example of how everyone who's worked so hard to destigmatize kink over the last 30 years might want to get busy re-stigmatizing kink just a little bit, especially after seeing this show. I got to say, the kink educators doing the flogging demo for the wide-eyed couple getting their sex room built, maybe I'm seeing something that wasn't there, but it sure looked like I was seeing two kink educators who've been doing the hard work of destigmatizing kink for many years, realizing in real time in front of the cameras that maybe they worked a little too hard. Because if this is what we get for all that hard work, bondage furniture unboxed and set out on the lawn in front of a suburban home and an impromptu impact play demo in front of the neighbors, the people Taylor and AJ probably wanted to keep their sex room secret from most, maybe we went a little too far. Should have destigmatized kink 50%, 75%, but not destigmatized it 100% to the point where you're now seeing shows like How to Build a Sex Room on Netflix. Something else I saw this week I wish I could unsee Matt Gates, Republican congressman from Florida who spoke at a giant Republican asshole palooza this weekend, where he had this to say about abortion rights protesters. Have you watched these pro-abortion, pro-murder rallies? The people are just disgusting. Like, why is it that the women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions? Nobody wants to impregnate you if you look like a thumb. Why isn't this guy in prison? Not for being an asshole, being an asshole and being a sexist piece of repulsive shit. That's not against the law. I'm talking about the minor that Matt Gates is very credibly alleged to have fucked. The congressman from Florida, a Trump supporter and an insurrectionist has been under investigation by the feds since at least May of 2021, which is when the New York times broke the story. He's alleged to have had sex with a 17 year old girl sex. He's alleged to have paid for. He's also alleged to have transported that 17-year-old girl across state lines for paid sex. Three federal crimes. Oh, and he's obstructed justice as well. Done what he could to block the investigation into his alleged crimes. So obstruction of justice, also a federal crime. That's four federal crimes that we know about. There might be more because the investigation is ongoing. As we read in the news every other month or so, Gates's former partner in crime is cooperating with the feds, a former girlfriend turned over evidence, testified before a grand jury, and still there he is, speaking in front of a room filled with the deranged right-wing fascists who've been trying to whip up a moral panic about out gay people grooming children just by being out gay people. Out and gay, out and lesbian, bi, trans, you're a groomer. Flying a high school junior across the country to fuck her? Apparently, you're a right-wing hero. The investigation into Gates began under former Attorney General Bill Barr. We found out about it in early 2021. It might have begun in 2020. What the fuck is going on at the Justice Department? Between Trump's crimes and this guy's crimes, alleged, alleged, alleged. And and, and I'm sorry, I'm going to take the bait here. Who's disgusting? We've seen video of Trump rallies. We all watched the insurrection live on TV. 
If there was a conventional beauty standard beauty pageant, I'm pretty sure a woman randomly selected from the crowd at the 2017 Women's March on Washington, D.C. would take the crown over the best looking by conventional standards of beauty lady at the January 6th insurrection. As for the guys, I like clean cut guys. And when I was in college, conservative guys were far less likely to have dreads, soul patches, scraggly beards, Peruvian drawstring pants. And while I didn't knowingly fuck with Republicans then and don't now, Sometimes I didn't ask. To this day, I prefer to do filthy things with guys that don't look filthy. And the guys at Trump rallies, yeah, they're not clean cut, scraggly to the point of feral. They look filthy and not in a good way. Give me that Clark Kent, that 23-year-old hottie over the shoulder of the witness at the last January 6th committee hearing. I like that tension. And if I'm going to mess up my white shag carpets in my sex room with anybody... I want it to be with somebody hot. All right, coming up on the micro, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love. More cues, more A's, no ads. Dr. Jen Gunter returns. She's the best-selling author of The Vagina Bible. She's back with some post-Dobbs advice for women who need abortions and women who are so worried they might need abortions that they can't enjoy sex. Two quick programming notes. On Thursday, we'll have a new Sex and Politics, a bonus podcast from our Magnum subscribers with New York Times opinion columnist Michelle Goldberg. We will also be releasing on Wednesday a special extra show that we're making available for all of our listeners, Micro and Magnum. Dr. Carlton Thomas took a couple of questions from my listeners. We talk about what gay and bi men need to know right now to protect themselves from monkeypox, and I wanted everyone be able to hear it, not just Magnum subs. So we're making that available to everyone. Also available to everyone, my sex advice column at savage.love slash savage love, where I give advice this week to a woman who can't tell if her boyfriend is inconsiderate because he's young or inconsiderate because he's an asshole. Head to my website, savage.love for a new savage love every Tuesday. Hi, Dan. I'm a woman in my twenties and I have a gorgeous, gorgeous boyfriend. And Whenever we go out, um, he gets flirted with a lot by other women. And at first, that kind of turned me on because I, I'm a longtime listener. And I, I've heard you talk about how sometimes knowing that your partner's been out all day, that you know they, they might have been flirted with, it can be a turn on. It can kind of rile you up a little bit as opposed to, you know, the opposite effect of, you know, you being jealous and them being out and, you know, being flirted with, you know, kind of is a turn on. And at the beginning, it was a turn on for me parading around my gorgeous boyfriend, you know, and having women flirt with him in front of me. I didn't mind it until one woman got kind of nasty one time. We were at a party and she didn't say, she said hi to him, gave him a big hug and then kind of like, snarled at me and then kind of just kept like cozying up to him. He didn't notice that, of course. Obviously, if he had, he wouldn't have continued, you know, talking to her. So that kind of just like from that point on, I get upset when he gets flirted with in public. And that is not his fault that he is gorgeous. I know you talk all the time about being married to Terry and how the hot boyfriend syndrome, hot husband syndrome of, you know, they're going to be flirted with. And my question is, how do you turn the jealousy into a turn on in my head because it used to be. And now ever since that one negative experience, I feel like every woman that comes up to him is going to flirt with him. And that may as well be the case because he is gorgeous and I know he wouldn't do anything. I just need to turn my mindset around. How would you 
go about turning that mindset around? How do you deal with going out with Terry and, you know, let's say he gets flirted with and you don't, because that happens to me. What, what would you do? I hate it when people say, oh, my boyfriend, he's so gorgeous. Prove it. Prove it. I want to see some pictures. I want to DM with your boyfriend's Instagram account handle. My boyfriend is gorgeous. I just can't take your word for that. As for what to do, look, you had one negative experience. I hope you never have food poisoning and then swear off food forever. You had one negative experience with someone being, with someone actually being, not kind of being a dick to you, trying to carve you off your boyfriend so that she could have him all to herself. Don't let that one asshole ruin for you what had been a fun and sexy positive sort of relationship with your boyfriend's attractiveness, just like you wouldn't let one bad bowl of gumbo ruin all food or Cajun food for you forever. If you got food poisoning from a bad oyster that said, you know, you ask like how it works with me and Terry. Yeah. Like Terry's a lot hotter than I am objectively. And we would be out in bars and of course guys would instantly be more into him than into me. And the way we kind of managed that was talking about, well, what's in it for me? You know, if Terry picks some guy up and we had a three way, there was something definitely in that for me. Also, you know, Terry's a good looker and I am a good talker. That's why I have this podcast. And sometimes people who are into Terry from the jump, just from the way he looked, would kind of get into me the more we got to talk with each other. A few of those guys wound up being more into me, which then Terry had to handle and deal with. So specifically about your situation, you need to talk with your boyfriend about, you know, you don't want to turn into one of those people with a hot partner that you can't be out in public with because you're going to have a meltdown or a jealous fit and punish not the person flirting with your partner because they're not going home with your partner. Your partner's never going to see that person again. You're never going to see that person again. You're going to punish your partner by having these meltdowns or freakouts. So you go to your boyfriend and talk to him and say, look, let's make sure there's something in this for me that's sexy when somebody flirts with you. What would that be? I can't tell you and your boyfriend what's sexy for you and your boyfriend, and I can't tell you what's sexy for you, but what could you build into that when it happens that would be sexy for you? Would it be, you know, he obviously comes over and starts flirting with you or macking on you when someone's been flirting with him and that person sees that you're the woman he's taken home or... You know, if he flirts with some woman in a bar in front of you, then that night he's going to eat your pussy and he's going to make you come three times and that's what's in it for you. What could possibly be in that for you? You want to kind of gamify this situation so that you're as excited, again, to see him being flirted with by somebody else as you used to be. And I'm confident that you and your hot boyfriend, right after you send me proof that your boyfriend is as hot as you say that he is, can get there. Hey, Dan. I'm calling because yesterday I was watching some porn and I was looking for videos of men getting jerked off and watching some like happy ending massage parlor videos. And I came across a video with a man laying on a massage table, and it was clearly not the, like, real deal happy ending. This was, like, a staged thing with his partner. However, <laughs> the guy laying on the table 
looked exactly like my ex-husband. We were together for seven years. We were married for six. We have not been together now for six years, and we're on really good terms. Everything ended friendly, amicably, and we're friendly now, but we don't have an ongoing conversation or text exchange. Like, we text each other on holidays, um, but we don't live in the same city, so we never run into each other. So when I reach out to him, it's kind of out of left field, or it's slightly awkward. You know, there's usually like, oh, something reminded me of you, just wanted to say, hey. I'm wondering if I should ask him if it's him. So I went to like the user's profile and there's multiple videos of the same kind of interaction. My ex has two small tattoos on his right arm. And in the video, this guy is conveniently hiding his right arm, but you can see his left. He uses his left hand to grope his partner and it doesn't show his face. I don't know what his partner looks like, so I don't know if that's her. I'm so torn, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I am just excited for him. Like The other part is that this is very different from anything we ever did together. It just feels like, what are the odds that I happened upon a video, multiple videos of him on Pornhub? But it's possible, right? Should I reach out? I really want to. Here's a little trip down memory lane. I think I was about 15, maybe 16, and I snuck into a dirty bookstore on Rush Street in Chicago. And I was looking at the magazines. And when you're a closeted gay kid sneaking into dirty bookstores in Chicago uh, in the 80s, you didn't make a beeline for the gay stuff. You kind of lingered over the straight stuff on your way to the gay stuff once you determined that none of your many, 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 many uncles happened to be in the dirty bookstore at that moment or any of your peers, classmates. So I was lingering by the uh, straight stuff and there was a pregnancy fetish section and I saw a magazine and there was a woman on the cover of the magazine pregnant, naked, and she lived on my block and I had babysat, babysit, <laughs> I was a sitter for a kid. And I saw her and I was, I wasn't thrilled or excited the same way that you're kind of thrilled and excited to have found who is probably your husband in these jack-off videos on Pornhub. I was a little, I guess, alarmed and sad. This was pre, you know, right on feminist porn and self-actualization. If somebody landed on the cover of a porn magazine, it usually meant that they were struggling or being exploited somehow. Even I knew that even then. But I also knew not to go to her and say, hey, did I see you on the cover of a pregnancy porn mag? You were pregnant like four months ago. Now you have two kids. Was that you? And I knew for sure it was her. But I knew enough at 15 not to say one goddamned word to her, even an affirming sex positive word to her. Hey, I'm in a dirty bookstore. I'm consuming porn. No shade, no judgment. Hey, you're on the, no, no. I just like kept my fucking 15 year old mouth shut, which is what you need to do with your, however old it is mouth right now. There is no reason to call your ex-husband up and have a chat and say, Oh, by the way, 
I came across, I love it when people use the expression I came across because if it's a penis having person who uses that expression, you can literally come across porn with your ex in it. There's just no way to fold that into conversation that isn't going to make it weird. And if he's hiding his right arm with his tattoos that would identify him to people who know him casually or people who know him like you once did intimately, well, he obviously doesn't want to necessarily be recognized particularly by his ex-wife. So you have a window into the person that your ex-husband is now. You can be happy for him. If you missed that dick, you can masturbate. You can come across his videos whenever you want, but be at least as emotionally intelligent as closeted 15-year-old me was and keep your fucking mouth shut. Hi, Dan. I'm a 36-year-old woman calling from Saskatchewan with a little pickle. Uh, about a year ago, I started dating a guy and he's wonderful. We're totally in love and I'm really, really happy in this relationship. He has a six-year-old son who I adore and who I just love and love spending time with. The thing is, I never really wanted kids until I kind of hit my mid-30s. And when I met him and he had a child, I went, great. I can help to raise his son and watch him grow up. And I love doing that. And I'm so thrilled. My partner's made it pretty clear that he doesn't want to have any more children for various reasons. And I really respect that. But lately I've been feeling like I want to have a baby and I don't really know what to do because if I stay in this relationship, which I want to, I'm completely still after a year. Like, I know that's not crazy long, but I'm still totally head over heels for this guy. And I, you know, if I broke up with him, who's to say that I would fall in love with somebody else who would want to have a child with me? And like I said, I'm 36, so it's not like I have all the time in the world to have a baby. I also have two little nieces and a nephew, and I love them to bits. I love them more than I can even comprehend. And I look at the way my sister loves them and how much my boyfriend loves his son, and I kind of even though I love these children, I know that it's not the same as if I had my own baby. So I really am just kind of at a loss for what to do here. I'm sure, you know, if I stay with my boyfriend and help to raise his son and watch him grow up, that'll be amazing. I mean, I'll be just so thrilled to have this boy in my life. But I can't quite shake this relatively new desire that I have to have a baby. And yes, I'm really annoyed that it took me until this age to, for these instincts to kick in. Somebody's going to have to pay the price of admission here. And it's either going to be you, you're not going to have any kids of your own, or it's going to be him. He's going to have another kid. You have to ask yourself if you're willing to issue an ultimatum and call the question and tell him it's have a kid with me or it's over and you don't seem like you want to do that. You say that you love him and you're head over heels and you can't imagine a life without him. All right. If he doesn't agree to pay the price of admission, if he doesn't respond affirmatively to being issued that uh, breed me or leave me ultimatum, then you're going to have to not have a kid of your own. But let's think about what that means to have a kid of your own. You're talking about 
you know, the experience of being pregnant, uh, giving birth, having that genetic tie to your kid, all of those things are emotionally significant, certainly very emotionally significant, very weighty. That said, there are plenty of people out there in the world, adoptive parents, for example, who regard their kids that they didn't give birth to as their own. And a lot of adoptive parents will tell you that they begin to feel like their adopted kid is really their child after they've gone through the motions of parenting for a while. And in that process, in the parenting of that child that you don't have a genetic connection to, they become your child. You've only been dating this guy with the son for a year. I hope and assume that you weren't introduced to this child until you and your boyfriend were serious about each other. So maybe you met this kid six months ago. And if it's a shared custody situation, you're only around this kid half the time or weekends. And so it could be that this feeling you have right now that that child, his child, as much as you love him, isn't your child, that that feeling will come in time. And so maybe in time, you will come to feel that your boyfriend's son is your own child in every way that matters, except that genetic tie, except, you know, there's so much of personality now that we know is heritable. And to look at your own genetic offspring and see not just your looks in them, but some of your personality, some of your attitudes, some of your faults even, and also some of your most excellent qualities. That's not nothing. There is something to that. But that phrase you kept using, a child of your own, you can get there emotionally with a child that you don't have any genetic tie to. But if you absolutely want to have your own child, well, go to your boyfriend, tell him that your feelings have changed. Maybe not issue an ultimatum, but initiate a, a conversation. And the no, absolutely not, he gave you a year ago when he was just getting to know you about having more kids. Maybe he feels differently now and hasn't raised the subject because you were a, a hard no at the beginning of this relationship. Your feelings have changed over the last year. Maybe his feelings have changed. Maybe they've changed in a way that he's not yet consciously aware of and you might get an initial no fucking way out of him and then he's going to think about this some more and he may move on it. But the longer you stay in this relationship, the longer you give him to move on this, if he's going to move on it, if he's not there right away, the louder that biological clock ticks and the less likely you are to be able to have a child of genetically your own. Hi, Dan, Nancy, tech-savvy, at-risk folk. mid 40 cis guy on the East Coast with a question about revealing certain information about my kid. I have a four-year-old who was conceived less than three months after their mom and I started dating. She was on the pill, so it was a bit of a shock. But ultimately, she decided she wanted to go through with the pregnancy, regardless of whether I was willing to be involved. Since I'd been wanting a family for a long time, even though we were super new to each other, we lived in a major city, so it just made sense to move in together for financial reasons and just so I could support her during the pregnancy and, you know, infant stages. We've been married about six months now and bought a house, so things worked out for our relationship, not just as co-parents. Our kid was born with a bunch of medical conditions, but doctors didn't have a diagnosis. 
And when they were about two years old and having some significant complications that required surgery, we had some genetics testing done. When the results came back, my child sample and mine didn't match. We kind of brushed this off at the time. It didn't impact the diagnosis and they'd ruled out like a hereditary condition. And we were just dealing with a lot of stress post-surgery and, you know, all the ongoing medical care our kid was going to need. So we just assumed it was a lab error or bad sample, which they said was a possibility. About a year later, though, we still don't have a diagnosis, so we get some more genetic testing done, and once again, our samples don't match. And it finally sinks in that I'm not this kid's biological father. So after some time to process that and mourn the loss of that connection, I honestly think it made my relationship with my kid even stronger. I just love being their dad more than anything, regardless of whose DNA they have. However, there is a bio dad out there, and my wife and I are struggling with how or when or even whether to tell him. On the one hand, it could be kind of exciting, this other person to enrich our kid's life and, you know, his extended family and, you know, takes a village and all that. But on the other hand, I'm scared shitless of this guy potentially trying to assert custody or outing the news to my family. I really don't want to mess with the relationship between my parents and my kid or with my wife. They've been really supportive and accepting and are proud grandparents of our disabled kid. And I don't want to fuck with that. I feel like this is one of your need not to know scenarios for parents. I guess I'm just wondering if we're ethically obligated to tell this guy about his child. And if so, when should we do it? If I put myself in his shoes, I'd want someone to tell me if I had a kid, and the earlier in their life, the better. Our kid is obviously way too young to understand this right now, and because of their conditions, they may never really intellectually be able to understand. On the legal front, I did talk to a lawyer, and it seems like we'd probably do well in court, but just the thought of dealing with that is terrifying. So yeah, Dan, love your thoughts, and maybe some other listeners out there have similar life experiences that could help us out. I hope this isn't that common an experience, but it's certainly not an unheard of experience. About 30% of men who take paternity tests wind up discovering that they're not the biological father of the child. That doesn't mean one third of men out there aren't the bio fathers of their kids. That's one third of a certain sample of men, men who are taking a paternity test because they suspect they might not be. But there are certainly cases like yours where genetic testing is done and it comes as a surprise to the person who assumed he was the biological father and often just as much as a surprise as I assume it came to your wife, to the mother that the person who was thought of as the bio dad and the dad, dad, all that time wasn't actually the biological father. You know all that. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm just addressing that. If there are other listeners out there who've had this experience, you'd like to hear from them. Maybe there are, and if there are, please give us a buzz and share with us how you tiptoed your way through this minefield. And it really is a minefield, and that's what I would emphasize to you, uh, the caller, the dad, and you are certainly this kid's dad. You know, you don't say much about what you know of the person who turns out to be the biological parent, biological, the donor, really, here. Is this person stable? Is this person trustworthy? Was this person, is this person someone that you feel would react to this information in a way that didn't 
blow up your family life, particularly if you don't want to reveal this information, uh, this truth to your grandparents, if you think it would be too much for them to handle and you want to run them on a need to know basis, maybe they don't need to know this. It's not, this news hasn't changed how you feel, but if you, based on what you know of your parents, worry that it might change how they feel and might change how they treat your kid and how available and supportive they are to you and your wife, uh, yeah, you might not want to tell them that's a judgment call that you're going to have to make. And weighing into all this, of course, is the ethical concern of what is that guy out there with a kid in the world? What does he have a right to know? And you put yourself in his shoes and you would like to know if you had a biological child in the world and you would like to have a relationship with that child. Uh, uh, it's such a difficult, stressful choice you're going to have to make. Uh, and, and it's a series of choices. It's a whole bunch of choices, just like tiptoeing through a minefield would be. You have to put your foot down as you move through that minefield way more than once. I feel like four years old and a disability and acute medical needs, you have enough stress in your life as parents, you and your wife, to ethically decide to kick this can down the road, to decide until to wait. If you ever do tell this guy at all to wait until your kid is a little older, until the medical situation has stabilized, maybe until your parents are fucking dead to go tell this guy. Cause you never know how someone's going to react. You know, he could sue for custody. He could want to play more of a role in your kid's life than either of you is comfortable with or can reasonably uh, accommodate. If your kid has developmental disabilities, it could be confusing to your kid in some way that hampers their progress uh, with your support as parents as they make their way in this world and you help them learn to manage their disabilities. Uh, like I said, everywhere you turn in this minefield, there's another fucking mine. And if the decision you and your wife come to together is to stand still and just be uh, a family and not decide to, to take a step in any direction right now around disclosure or whether to disclose or when to disclose, I would support you in that decision to stand still. Be interesting to hear from some listeners who may have been the biological parent in this situation who feel differently or perhaps would agree with my advice. Hey Dan, I'm a male, mostly submissive, and I'm into just about every kink out there. I'm thinking about paying for a membership to meetbdsm.com, but I am unsure. The last woman that I met on a fetish website, I ended up sending all my money to and she keeps wanting more. When I refuse to pay her my own money, she sends me checks that I've yet to ever clear, and she wants me to buy her Bitcoin. She says it's for our life together. I have never even talked to this woman on the phone. I have ended things with her a few times, but she keeps messaging me, and I keep messaging back. I'll block her number, but she will message me from a different number. At this point, I am fed up, and I want a relationship not centered around money. And I want more than just texting, which is the only interaction we have ever had. 
I am sensitive, creative, and caring, and I'm looking for a lifetime partnership centered around love and kink with a beautiful woman, but I fear that they all just want my money. I have already created a long, detailed profile with my kinks, fantasies, my best attributes, and social media links, but I am unsure if I should pay for the membership. I'm not endorsing meetbdsm.com. I have no read on whether that's a legit way for kinky people to meet, a legit dating app or website uh, where kinky people could meet. What I do know is that it would be money better spent you know, paying for a membership at meetbdsm.com or some other, you know, kink friendly dating app, that would be money better spent than the money you're spending now on this person who may or may not be a woman who exists, but is never going to be the woman of your dreams. They have no intention of ever meeting you face to face or talking with you on the phone or having any sort of relationship with you. Now, there are certainly, heard a lot about fin doms and fin subs over the last decade. There are certainly people out there who would regard this kind of relationship you have with this person, where it's all taxed and demands for money as arousing, as really all they wanted, maybe at all in a relationship, or maybe as a sort of little sexy sideline to their committed, stable vanilla relationship, getting that little like sub itch scratched by some stranger on the internet with your digits. That ain't you. You want more and you're never going to get it from this woman. You might get it. I don't know. Anybody out there listening ever taken an ad out and had a success at BDSM.com? You might get it there or at the problematic site FetLife or at Field. There are a lot of options out there for folks, including kinky folks going on regular dating apps on OkCupid and Plenty of Fish and the other ones and being a little open, being open, being open about being kinky, you know, kinky people meet in vanilla venues, IRL, in real life, bars, workplaces, through friends all the time and on presumably default vanilla dating apps too. Cast a wide net. Move on all fronts. Get out of the house. If you're really interested in kink, go to munches. Get involved in your local BDSM or kink scene. And please, it'll help if what you want is a long-term connection with another human being. If you have realistic expectations and a very broad definition of beauty, that is not just about physical beauty or conventional standards of beauty, but about inner beauty and about a connection and a rapport with someone. And you can build that over time, which is just a long way of me saying, dude, if you're not an Adonis, it's not a realistic expectation that you will get Venus or an Aphrodite. Doesn't mean you won't or can't. Some unconventionally attractive people wind up with very conventionally attractive partners. You could be one of them. But if what you want is a partner, having realistic expectations is a really good idea and makes it much likelier that you'll find one. Hi, Dan. 37-year-old woman here from England. I have uh, recently been diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, The outlook is good for me, but I do have a sex question. So... 
I wear something called a pick line, which is basically a tube going through my arm up to my, through a vein towards my heart. Uh, this is a way that uh, they can get drugs more easily into me without having to inject me every time, which is great, but I can't uh, put too much weight on that arm and need to be a bit careful with it, obviously. And sometimes I like to be tied up during sex, and sometimes when I'm tied up, the, it cuts off a bit of circulation to my hands, and I'm just wondering, is that safe? I've been avoiding it for the time being, but it's something I enjoy very much, so obviously I want to take my pleasures where I can at the moment. Any advice would be great. Thank you. I want to emphasize again that I am not a doctor, but common sense would indicate that so long as you have this pick line in your arm that runs into your heart, you're going to want to err on the side of extreme caution and not putting pressure on that arm. That said, there are different kinds of bondage. There are different ways to enjoy bondage. If you are feeling up for sex as you go through chemo for your breast cancer and, and get treated, don't deny yourself that pleasure. And if bondage is a big part of the pleasure for you, then let's figure out a way that you can have maybe a different kind of bondage, not rope bondage, not you're using you know tight restraints, whatever it was that would sometimes make your hand or your arm go numb. You're going to want to avoid that kind of bondage. You know, when it comes to bondage, it often feels like people will regard the stuff that's a little bit more dangerous, but that is a little like lower cost of entry as less extreme than the more extreme kinds of bondage that can often be more comfortable uh, and safer. You know, people will use clothesline or people will use cheap ass handcuffs and cheap ass handcuffs can twist and really damage the bones in your wrists or really hurt or bruise. Um, and clothesline can cut and cut off circulation and some good high quality bondage gear that spreads out the pressure while it looks more extreme and looks kinkier and crazier and makes you more of a sex pervert to order it or own it or use it, that's a lot safer than those off-the-shelf things that people regard as somehow less kinky, less dangerous, less extreme, and therefore people view as safer when it is not. So depending on whether you can afford this right now, getting uh, a neoprene sleep sack, uh, which is a kind of expensive bondage toy, uh, or a comfortable, not leather, not a lot of straps, not tight, neoprene or rubber straight jacket, a simple one without straps. Maybe there's a kind of bondage that you could do right now where your arms would have no pressure on them and you would still be completely and thoroughly restrained. And you could explore that now and then incorporate you know, that kind of bondage, more extreme bondage, uh, you know, more gear into your sex life going forward. Once you're out of treatment, it's not like you buy an expensive neoprene straitjacket that's very comfortable because you are right now uh, in treatment for breast cancer and then throw that away after you're no longer in treatment. You can keep that uh, and make that a part of your regular repertoire and routine with your partner. You can also explore command bondage, which is literally no gear, but if you're told not to move, you don't get to move. And that's really a kind of brain and will bondage. But if you believe, if you throw yourself into it, it can be experienced as real bondage and a placeholder kind of bondage for you right now that would be safe. My heart goes out for you. 
right now, you know, during chemo, if you are feeling aroused or horny at all, don't deny yourself any pleasure. Take these pleasures as they come to you, but you can find a way to make them a little safer. And if you've been using handcuffs or rope or twine up to now and you can afford it, invest in some higher quality gear. It'll be more comfortable and it'll be safer. Hi, Dan. I am a 37-year-old cis white woman living in Ohio. And um, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, I'm a bit at a loss for not only my fellow uterus havers in the state, including the 10-year-old girl who had to be sent over to Indiana because she was raped and would have been forced to carry the pregnancy to term. I have a question about tubal ligation. My husband recently had a vasectomy about six months ago, and I got off birth control because my body doesn't agree with hormones. And I always assumed that worst case, if the vasectomy didn't work, even though he's had all the tests, no sperms are coming out, I could get an abortion if I got accidentally pregnant because I'm a 37-year-old woman who has known since she was 21 that she didn't want children. I want to remove any doubt, and so I'm scheduled a consultation for a tubal ligation, which, ironically, I couldn't even get into my doctor for eight weeks. So if I were to get pregnant between now and then, I would have to keep the baby in Ohio. It's so fucked up, and I'm so angry, and I am so privileged because I could afford to travel. But even then, I don't want to take a spot from somebody else. Anyways, my question is, what are the risks of vasectomies not working, and what are the risks associated with tubal ligation? And am I overreacting? I don't think I am. I think I'm going to go through with it because I'm done dealing with this bullshit as people telling me what to worry about, what not to. But um, I would love to have an expert weigh in on it uh, before I go in for my consultation. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Jen Gunter is an OBGYN, author of The Vagina Bible, bestselling, and The Menopause Manifesto, also a bestseller, contributor to The New York Times, frequent guest here on The Lovecast. And she writes the invaluable newsletter, Vagenda, or The Vagenda, which you can find at vagenda.substack.com. Hey, Dr. Jen Gunter, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dan. These are, we sound cheerful, but these are <laughs> shitty, distressing times. Welcome to our dystopian present. Yeah, it's, I feel like we're sort of in that, like a, like a dystopian whirlpool vortex where it's just every day, it's just worse. <laughs> it, yeah, like I, I don't, we were saying before we started recording, I just don't understand people who enjoy dystopian fiction while we are all living dystopian nonfiction every goddamn day for the last decade or or more. I know, right? It's this creep and it's just, you know, you don't realize, I feel like in many ways we're sort of like walking in quicksand and each time you pull your foot free and it's like, whew, that was a close call. And I don't think we realize like how we're waist deep at the quicksand, like the quicksand's at our neck. Yeah, we got Donald Trump out of the White House, but we've got Donald Trump Supreme Court for the next 40 fucking oh. years. So we're not past Donald <sighs> Trump yet. Um, before we get to this call, um, and the anxieties that the caller is experiencing and the questions that she has about tubal litigation. I, I want to thank you for the Vagenda. I've been citing the Vagenda on the show, talking about your advice to women who do self-administered medication abortions at home, that if they do wind up in the hospital, they don't have to disclose that they took those medications to service providers or healthcare workers who may not be trustworthy. Not all healthcare workers are pro 
choice. And we had that case in Texas where a woman's, you know, people in the ER called the sheriff on a woman who took medication abortions. And you made the point again and again, and I'm going to reemphasize it here again, that if you do a medication abortion at home and you have complications, very rare, but if you do and you wind up in an ER, they can't tell the difference between a medication abortion-induced miscarriage and a plain old miscarriage, and you don't have to tell them. That's exactly right. It's just not there. There really are no blood tests that are commercially available to find, you know, any sort of remnants, you know, circulating around in your blood. And and we just can't tell looking at you. Like there's just no possible way to know. So you don't have to tell anybody. It's not going to negatively affect your care. And, you know, especially laws are changing so rapidly in some of these states uh, about, you know, who knows if they're going to even come for, you know, physician-patient confidentiality. So, you know, just you don't have to say anything. You want to take care of yourself, and medication abortion is incredibly safe. And what a nightmare scenario that we're having to warn women who may wind up in the hospital that they need to lie to doctors, nurses, orderlies, shrinks, anybody who comes into their room about exactly why they're there for fear of being prosecuted for having yeah. a miscarriage self-induced or not it's 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 absolutely beyond i like i don't even have words to describe it which i think is is what yeah i'm sounding so inelegant because it's it's just this I feel like we're through the looking glass we're just like in this other dimension where things shouldn't happen but again Lots of people predicted this. And, you know, when, you know, when the face eating cheetah says it's going to eat your face, you know what? Like the writing was on the wall for this. And anybody who thinks it's not going to go to the worst extreme imaginable is kidding themselves. It's, they're going to make the worst laws. And every awful law they get passed just means they can pass another awful. They're just pushing that line. So people are just, don't even think, well, the laws they had five years ago, they're not so bad because look at how awful this one is. Or I live in a blue state, so I don't need to worry about this. I saw someone on Twitter refer to that. Here I am on abortion island and I'm going to be safe. Yeah. We are Republicans taking control of Congress away from a national abortion ban and there being nowhere it's safe where a woman can choose to have an abortion or women from red states can go to have abortions. They're talking about criminalizing interstate travel for women uh, and other people who might need abortions from traveling to get those abortions. We are through the looking glass. There was one thing you wrote at the agenda that I talked about on the top of the show and I loved so much that the hanger is not the symbol for the movement now for these protests. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, you know, at one point uh, in the not too distant past, uh, definitely people were resorting to really dangerous methods, a coat hanger, obviously, so you can get a wire and stuff it up through your cervix. And that would lead to uterine perforations and, uh, you know, injuring the bowel and people dying from sepsis. They also did Lysol douches, like all these awful things. And, you know, if you got an abortion, it was really only probably because you were really ill, right? So, so that, it, you know, these methods are very unsafe. And, that was, I don't, what we don't want is we don't want people to think that those are the options that are, that are available, that, that there is medication abortion. And if you're going to do something that might in your state not be legal, there is a safe way to get an abortion and that's medication abortion. And so people should really be 
not having symbols of coat hangers because that sticks in people's mind. It's really, it's powerful imagery and I get why people want to use it, but we don't want people to think that that's an option. We want people to say, look, if you're going to take it into your own hands, medication abortion is the way to go. Which are two pills and you can order them online. Go to plancpills.org for information about how to get your hands on these medications. You can also order them in advance. They're good for five years. You can have them on hand for yourself or your friends. I think it'd be a good idea for people in blue states to do this. I've done it. Uh, I threw a friend, got my hands on some, put it away in case you know I have nieces in red states. They ever need it. We are on a plane. It is in a FedEx envelope. There's nothing they can do about it. That's what I loved about that message that the pill is a symbol. Because with the hanger, you know, I remember going to a pro-choice protests in the, you know, 80s, and the hanger said, We're scared. We don't want to go back to the days of the hanger, and we're terrified. What the pill says is fuck you. We don't have right. to go back to those days. Right. Absolutely. I think we just have to absolutely hammer that message. And even if you can't get a hold of both pills, if you can only get a hold of the mesoprostol, it's really effective on its own. We're talking like 87%, which is far better than any of the other clandestine methods. So even the less effective pill method is better than anything else that you can do. And you can buy that over the counter in Mexico. You know, vets prescribe it apparently for horses. Um, there, so there's lots of different people who can step up and help with access here. And you know, your doctor, you can go to your doctor and say, you know, you have an upset, you have acid reflux. And I mean, this is not medical advice. This is, you know, like, hey, you know, it's just an idea. Um, but you can get that medication for other reasons. You can get it for prevention of stomach ulcers. So that, so. You can even get one of those, uh, one of the two pills. It's even easier to get, and it's safer than any other option that you could do. Obviously, two pills is best, but one pill is better than anything else. And if all those idiot right wingers could get their hands on horse dewormer over the last couple of years, <laughs> yeah. you should feel free to get your hands on. I can never. I don't know how many times I've heard the names of these pills given. I just call them M and M's now. I just yeah. Oh, M and M's is great. Oh my God, everybody should have a little bowl of M&M's at their house. <laughs> a little bowl of M&M's. All right, let's talk about a really effective birth control method here to avoid having to, you know, dip your hand into your friend's bowl of M&M's. Tubal litigation. Now, it would be great. More men should be getting vasectomies, especially right now. And I think more men are thinking about it. We've seen huge upticks in the numbers of men inquiring about getting vasectomies now. Women thinking about tubal litigations. What are the risks... And how effective is a tubal litigation? Yeah, so tubal ligation. Um, oh, and ligation, so, pardon yeah. me, sorry. Well, you know, there's so much, all we're, all, all we're doing litigation. is litigation, right? Litigation, in court, like that's in a, court. That's how I feel. Well, it feels like you might have to go to court to get one. But no, so tubal ligation and vasectomy both have failure rates of, of less than 1%. And the failure rates are highest in the first few months. Um, and the, so the further out you get, the lower, you know, that totally drops off. So sometimes with a tubal ligation, sometimes people are inadvertently pregnant, you know, like, like basically, you know, they had sex the night before the, the, you know, the ovum is fertilized. And then, you know, two weeks after the tubal ligation, they have a positive pregnancy test. So all those failures happen almost always in the first couple of months, sometimes, you know, or if the procedure wasn't done correctly, you know, like surgical error, that type of thing. Um, but we're generally recommending removing fallopian tubes, so removing um, the uh, the oviducts, which we like to call them now, and so the failure rate's even lower because there's nothing to like grow back together, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's no clip to fall off, and so failure rates are very very low. 
And regret is really, really low. You know, the the regret's a little bit higher if people are under the age of 30, but it's still really low. It's still really low. And we should trust people. If people say they don't want to ever be pregnant, okay. Like I, I trust people when they come in that they've thought about these things. And it's really the, the other advantage of a tubal ligation is it lowers your rate of getting ovarian cancer down the road. So it's got an added benefit. So this caller, her husband already got a vasectomy and she is so terrified of the prospect of having to get an abortion or not be able to get an abortion if she should get pregnant, if her husband's vasectomy somehow fails. And you said that as a 1% or less failure rate, so that's highly unlikely. Are you seeing this a lot? You must be seeing this a lot where people are just experiencing such anxiety and distress and fear. Yeah, absolutely. So people are kind of contorting themselves into scenarios that are very unlikely. But if you think about what's been happening to our world, things that are really unlikely are happening, right? So you can understand it. And so, you know, the odds of a vasectomy failing are, again, less than 1%. If if your husband's had the vasectomy like a year ago, you know, it would be like you know, lightning strike less, you know, you're talking about something really, really unlikely to happen. So then you have to decide everybody has different levels of risk that they can bear, right? I mean, sometimes we'll see people and like, oh, well, you know, that I'm happy with withdrawal because a 25% failure rate's okay for me. And other people are like, 25% failure rate, like, what are you talking about? Like, that's like absurd. So we all have different risks that we can tolerate. So for somebody who's really, really concerned, you know, With your partner having vasectomy, well, maybe if you have other partners, so outside of your relationship, then you might want that protection. And so there's that reason to have it. Or Um, if like the 10-year-old in Ohio, you're the victim of sexual assault or rape. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's... It's fine that you know, if you have a steady partner, but we we live in a world where absolutely sexual assault can happen, where people can change their minds about the partner that they're with, and mm-hmm. you know, or or they can you know make a decision one night that maybe they wish they hadn't, but they made that decision, and then you know, then now what? Or making making a decision that they were happy to make, like having right. a three way with your your husband with another man, and you use a condom and a condom leaks. Like it could, you know, if you're totally afraid of the introduction of any semen in the vaginal canal that could potentially right. Um, impregnate you, it would limit your options, not just for, you know, terrible options to contemplate, but also maybe some fun options for you and your husband to contemplate. Absolutely. You know, what you enjoy sexually now may not be what you enjoy sexually in five years, right? Like things, you know, absolutely. And so if you want to make yourself as safe as possible, a tubal ligation adds that extra layer. I mean, I think that for someone who who says, well, I only have one partner right now and I don't foresee any situation where that's going to change. I think think needing a tubal ligation is a low risk, but it's your body and your choice. And if that makes you feel more comfortable, you know, I would support it. I just, I like to jump in every once in a while when we're like ticking through all the nightmare scenarios to just remember that even in this dystopian present that we're all living in, there are dream scenarios too. Yes. There are good things to think about as options and that carry with them risks that you can control and mitigate for by getting a tubal ligation. Hopefully we won't have to litigate those and women will be empowered and entrusted to make these decisions for themselves. But who the fuck knows how close to Gilead we're going to get with this avalanche of legislation targeting women? 
Yeah. I mean, we just, you just don't know. And I think that sometimes people feel better when they've done something with their own body to protect themselves. And even if they're not going to use it, if that, you know, even if they're like, well, I've, I'm, I'm never having sex with anybody ever again. I'm, you know, I'm entering the convent where I'm done with everything. You know, sometimes people want to do things for their bodies in certain ways that make them feel better. I mean, people get plastic surgery and 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 that makes them feel better about their body and if if having a having your tubes removed gives you some kind of level of security that um that you need then then I'm actually very supportive of that but i would say for someone who's you know who isn't thinking about any of the other scenarios especially the fun ones uh if it's really just the fact that you're super super worried about the vasectomy failing like that's your thing you're really really focused on it also might be worthwhile talking with a psychologist about other things that might be amplifying that anxiety because if those other things if you're able to talk through that and and get some coping strategies it's possible you m- might not be as anxious about the vasectomy failing Can we keep you on the line for one more question? Yeah. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old female living in Texas. I identify as queer or bi, and it's, it's been a year since I've had sex with anyone. The joke is I'm not bisexual. I'm by myself. And now with the Supreme Court doing what it's done... I really don't want anyone to touch me, but I miss having sex. And like, that's, that's a a part of the human experience that I miss having. Any suggestions that you have? Because as of late, even when I masturbate completely alone in my own home, I have a panic attack almost afterwards or like a, my, my pulse speeds up. Like it's not like the post orgasm fuzzies that we're all kind of used to. It's like, okay, now I have to get up and run out of the room. So here we have a woman who is afraid to masturbate. Yeah, it's it's so sad. And when you think about, I think back to the day that Donald Trump got elected. And in that day in the office, you know, I was driving to work, listening to Hillary Clinton's concession speech, sobbing. And every single patient, every single patient sobbed all day in the office. They sobbed. They were traumatized. And nobody wanted to actually talk about the medical conditions they were there for. They they were like sobbing. And so we're in a situation that's progressed from there. You know, we have this Supreme Court for 40 years. We have these laws that are just, so I can't, so thinking of what that was like, you know, four and a half, five and a half years ago, of course, we're at the state where people are, the anxiety is really affecting them. So for someone who's having a panic attack with, with any situation, but, you know, I think that they should really be seeing a psychologist to help them and possibly a psychiatrist as well, because there are medications that can help with panic attacks. Uh, and, and so I would definitely recommend that to start with. And I think, you know, I, I remember the night Donald Trump got elected, I sobbed. I was actually hosting an election night returns party in front of a thousand people and had to break the news. Um, I was devastated and then came home and we had the craziest, most panicky gay sex I think we've ever had. Um, And you can look at, I think, masturbation through a lens of this is what is going to put me at risk, desire, sexual activity. You can also look at it perhaps in a more, you know, and I think unpacking this with a psychologist, not just listening to your sex advice podcast monkey talk about it, but 
you can see it through a different lens where it's about defiance and the assertion of control over your body. And, you know, I'm, you know, gay and old. And there were times when I felt like I was because of my homosexuality and, you know, what I wanted sexually being, you know, made vulnerable in ways that were intense and libido killing. But there were also days where I felt like giving, not giving in, enjoying, throwing myself at my desires was to say fuck you and was to take control of of my body despite what other people were telling me I was or wasn't allowed to do with it. And maybe for the caller, it's just a slight shift in perspective that, you know, that orgasm that I just had through self-pleasure, you know, you're having that wave of you know, post-orgasm kind of regret, sadness, X, you can like will yourself to push that feeling onto, you know, away from a, you know, fuck me, I'm fucked to fuck you guys. I'm going to fuck feeling, even if I'm going to fuck with toys, even if I'm going to fuck solo, even if, you know, I'm only going to choose your bi caller, only choose female partners from here on out because fuck sperm cells. Like you can, you can make it empowering, but sometimes you have to will it. I think also too, I wonder if, if the, you know, for people who might find themselves in a similar situation, if there may have been some, you know, previous sexual trauma. And so trauma brings up trauma and we're living in traumatic times, you know? And when you hear stories of people being raped in the news and all, like awful, awful stories and awful things happening to people, you know, that has to have this, this impact. And if you've been, if you've had a sexual trauma yourself, you might be able to see yourself in that situation. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm so empathetic in my heart. I mean, I, for so many people, I, I feel so badly. I mean, I, the other thing too, from a practical standpoint is, you know, if you think that you're, you're just, worried again about, about pregnancy and IUD is also a great option. Failure rate is also less than 1%. So there are some other ways to, to protect you, uh, you know, from, from something that could lead you to a situation where you'd have to make a decision about abortion. It feels like giving ground to talk about all the ways we can protect ourselves, tubal ligation, IUDs, so that we don't need to have an abortion. Some part of me wants to have all the abortions right now. If I was, you know, if I had a uterus and if I was a woman and I was watching Texas do what Texas is doing and Ohio do what Ohio is doing and the Supreme Court doing what it's doing, part of me would be like, I want to get pregnant and take the, take M&Ms twice a day uh, because fuck these people. But abortion is not trivial. Abortion is complicated and, you know, the the answer to you, people who are pro-life is not, can we live in a world that does or doesn't have abortions? It's how many abortions we're going to have. And the more people who have access to effective, long-lasting means of birth control, the fewer abortions we have or have to get. And yet, and yet, they're coming for birth control. And yet, yeah, oh, they're coming for Griswold. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They're, 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 you know, and it does, the science doesn't matter. You know, they don't care. That you so all these people do all these elegant studies to show why we need this one. That they don't care. They make up their own science. It is totally irrelevant. You know, when you're not encumbered by the truth, it it opens up a lot of doorways, right? You know, and I would just say that we shouldn't be in a situation where people have to make 
decisions about their health based on the laws, based on legality. People should have access to abortion in the same way that they have access to birth control, in the same way they have access to prenatal care. And they should just have it all. And it should be up to them to make the decisions that work for them. Uh, you know, in countries where there's no abortion law, Canada, it's not in the criminal code, you know what? The abortion rate's pretty much the same. It's, you know, it turns out that you can trust people to make decisions with their bodies. I always find it's so funny. Well, not funny. I mean, it's sad, but the way we talk about, you know, all the the hoops people have to jump through here to get an abortion, but we don't make people jump through hoops to stay pregnant. Like, <laughs> like, wait a minute. Like, you, like, so there's no, there's no decision involved. There's no state, you know, rules or anything for, for actually having a baby, but making a different decision is you have to like, you know, beg and plead. Dr. Jen Gunter, OBGYN, author of The Vagina Bible, The Menopause Manifesto, the newsletter, The Vagenda at vagenda.substack.com. You should be following her already on Instagram at Dr. Jen Gunter and Twitter, where she's also at Dr. Jen Gunter. Dr. Gunter, thank you so much. It's always an honor when you come on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm in a V-triad poly relationship with my two partners, one who I've been with for just over two years and one who I've been with for over 10 years now. The latter, we opened our relationship about three and a half years ago. Just over two years into this very much parallel poly relationships, I find that it is a lot of emotional work and honestly not completely sustainable for me having to constantly choose between the two of these partners in terms of who to take to events, who to invite to parties. I've not really thrown parties, one, because it's been a pandemic, but two, because I don't like having to choose between them. And I think given the choice, I would be much more interested in a kitchen table style poly situation. But my partner of over 10 years is very much against that idea. He doesn't really want to have anything to do with my other partner. And so I feel a little bit stuck. I don't really want to have to end either of my relationships. I love both of my partners very much. And there are parts of this uh, dynamic that work really well for me. But the, the constant choosing I'm finding really challenging. And I'm just wondering if you have any tips about how I might negotiate moving towards a more kitchen style poly relationship. Or if you even think that's possible. It is a truth universally acknowledged and polyamory circles that any v-shaped poly triad where the metamors which are the two people who aren't in a relationship with each other but are in a relationship with the point in the v if the metamors don't get along that that fucking thing is doomed now there are exceptions there are certainly people in v-shaped triads where the metamors don't get along and the trick to making that work is not forcing the metamors forcing your two boyfriends to spend much or any time with each other. If circumstances were different, it would certainly be less emotionally burdensome for you if they could be together. If you could have that, as I keep calling it, kitchen sink polyamory, it's kitchen table polyamory where everybody could sit down and have a meal and have breakfast and hang out and be chill. But that's not who they are. That's not how they feel about each other. So that's not what you're going to get. And any attempt on your part to force that is going to backfire. That's going to get you to a place where one or the other or both of your partners 
are issuing ultimatums, are telling you it's him or it's me, and you have to choose. So sometimes you just can't have what you can't have, and you're allowed to be sad about that. I'd rather things were different is certainly something that you can say to both your partners, but more togetherness in this circumstance isn't the solution to your relationship problems. It is the end of one or the other, or potentially both of your relationships. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Big Apple Mave tweets, people with vasectomies are fire emoji. Let's normalize contraception as everyone's responsibility, not just the vagina havers. They're hot, as we once said, people with vasectomies and lots of other people. Now someone is fire, fire emoji, because fire is hot and also because fire, as both a concept and a reality is, more easily represented with a pictorial symbol than the more abstract and less easily emojied or emojied concept of hot. Liptar Queen tweets, fake Dan Savage help. I am an avid listener to the Savage Lovecast, but I didn't take notes. My boyfriend and I are looking for a book on female pleasure. Any wrecks? Yeah, a few wrecks. Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. She Comes First by Ian Kenner, Because It Feels Good by Debbie Herbenick, and Getting a Membership at OMG Yes. Dot com. And finally, Amanda Pandemonium tweets, it is so disappointing when you're enjoying an American film slash TV show and then it's ruined because one of the characters says twat, but pronounces it twat. Now, Amanda didn't tweet me. I got tagged into her tweet by Lovecast listener Benjamin Hendy, who tweeted, see also at Fake Dan Savage. So it would appear perhaps that I've been pronouncing twat wrong. Yeah, no, I'm going to say no to that. The American pronunciation of T-W-A-T is twat. Brits say twat. And since there are more of us than there are of you Brits, there are more people out there saying twat. And you twats are just going to have to get used to it. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who posted your social media accounts about the Lovecast over the last week. We really appreciate the way you help get the word out about the Savage Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. Hi, Dan. I'm just calling with a quick comment regarding the caller on 821 who says that he's high-level, functioning, autistic individual who is not understanding why his partner doesn't want to engage in uh, sexual intimacy with him. And one thing that came to my mind was that Perhaps he is missing clues that she thinks are not so subtle, or perhaps there's things going on in her life that maybe he knows about, but doesn't realize could be affecting her sex drive. Like if she's got a particularly stressful job, she's 32, he's 22, he doesn't talk about the money dynamics of the relationship, but maybe she is the more moneyed spouse or, well, fiance, and perhaps she's just got some stress. You know, the pandemic is still causing people a lot of stress right now. And I think the issue may be maybe he's not picking up on those clues. Maybe there's something else underpinning it. Maybe she doesn't want to tell him or maybe there is some trauma behind it. But it could also be that. And I think the biggest thing is that he needs to just say to her, I've told you this before, I need very strong communication. And he needs to go to her and say, this is bothering me, and I don't know if you've tried telling me or tried to subtly hint it to me, but whatever it is, I'm not getting, and it's very frustrating to me. So that may be number one. 
The other thing is, is I would be very cautious as somebody who may have some differences uh, developmentally or in in how he perceives other people's emotions to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't understand that. If she's not able to communicate with him the way that he needs, then that's not a great primary partner for her. And I would think after three years together, she would know better about how to communicate with him and his need to communicate. Hello, this is a comment for the woman in episode 821 who was having issues expressing her desire to to kind of dominate or goddess worship or have her boyfriend fling guy goddess worship her. Um, and he was experiencing ED. Uh, one of the ways to go about it is to make it fully about him pleasing you and having 0% of the attention be on him. So like, you know, tie up his hands, ride his face, whatever you need to do. And then to get yourself off and then see if that lack of focus on him is what actually gets him hard, especially if he's worried about leaving town and he's developing feelings. And since he seems down to explore this with you, that wouldn't be something that would necessarily turn him off. I would say that there's probably something going on mentally that's blocking him from doing that. So instead, if you just try and enjoy yourself with his permission, of course, and see if that lack of focus on him or his performance is what actually gets him going. And then you can do the whole denial thing, make him want it a little bit more. But don't focus as much on his anatomy and focus more on him pleasing you and worshiping you. Hi, Dan. This is a response to episode 821 with the bi woman with the bigoted family. I think you did a good job on guiding her to allow her family some time to come to grips with her being bi. My issue isn't with anything you said there, but as someone growing up black, pansexual, and in the South, and sometimes having serious white partners, do not take that black woman to that bigoted household. Anyone who in 2022 is still harping on about straight pride and white pride needs to do a lot of work before being put in front of a queer black woman just minding your business. I understand the whole we won't change minds without talking to the other side take, but that's work the caller really needs to do with their family first. Please, as someone who's been to dinner with a family who quote unquote used to be racist, spare her. Black women are tired and deal with enough as it is without being dragged into a den of racism and queer phobia when they're supposed to be on vacation. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? You twats can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. And you twats can also call us at 206-302-2064. Hump 2022 is coming to Ann Arbor, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Atlanta, Victoria, and Los Angeles in September and October. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets now. We'll also be announcing more opportunities to stream this year's festival online for folks who don't live in hump towns or folks who would prefer to watch hump at home. And submissions are open for Hump 2023. Go to humpfilmfest.com and click on submit for all the info you need. August 13th is National Prosecco Day. Drinking Prosecco out of skinny little champagne flutes on National Prosecco Day is out. Drinking Prosecco and lots of it out of your Fuck First or GGG mug, that's in. You're going to want two, one for you and one for the person you trust enough to have anal sex with on a white leather couch with a white fake fur throw on it sitting on a white shag carpet. Get your Fuck First and GGG mugs now at savage.love slash shop. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Jen Gunter on Twitter at Dr. Jen Gunter. 
The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We'll all be back at you next week during installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.